Well, good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church. If you're just joining with us this morning, uh, we're in a series right now called In the Mess. It's a series all about how God doesn't avoid the mess. He doesn't walk around it, step around it. He jumps right into it that God is found, grace is found in the mess. Last week we heard about this messy story from the life of Jacob, which we'll be continuing this morning, and we hear about how, how all of these plans just sort of bumped into each other and collided. And sometimes we think that we do that with God when our plans and God's plans collide and we have this kind of like, like latent anxiety about what if I messed up? What if I thwarted God's plan? And remember we said last week, if you can thwart God's plan, friend, you need a bigger God. <laughs> this morning we continue on in talking about not our messy plans, but our messy pasts. And to kind of get us on the same page, we all have messy pasts. We all have mistakes that we've made. If you're looking at your life and you're going, I haven't made a mistake, I don't have a messy past, you don't need church or like Jesus or anything. Like you're perfect, you got life figured out, you're good. But for the rest of humanity, we're meeting here and we're, we're kind of owning our messy past. And to kind of start us off, I'll go first with a story or three about some of the mistakes that I have made. Uh, when I was 16 years old, like most 16-year-olds, I got a piece of paper that allowed me to operate a vehicle. And I was so thrilled, and I thought I was invincible. I thought I was, I thought I was the king of the road, which is why I decided with, with half-defrosted windows in the morning to dart across four lanes of traffic, Frogger style. Now, it was a rough experience, mostly for my little two-door two-door Ford coupe than it was for the Jeep Grand Cherokee that ran into me. Totally my fault. Uh, but we like made it through. Looking back at that mistake, I thought I can grow from this. I can learn from this. And I didn't because soon after that in the same vehicle, I was backing out of a friend's driveway and, uh, and I failed to, to secure, to close all doors on the vehicle. Remember, there were just two of them, mine and one more. And it was open. I maintained that that shrub just popped out of nowhere, but bent the door 45 degrees the wrong way. And I was reminded of that messy past, of that mistake, every time I would take a left-hand turn in that car because the door ajar light would go on and the tone would ring and the dome light would open, would, would, would turn on. And I could go on and on sharing these stories of mistakes that I've made of messy driving errors, like the time I sideswiped a minivan in Indiana, or the time I got a speeding ticket, um, because I wanted so badly there was a rule in place that said, if you're 16 years old, you have, to, you have to be off the road at midnight. And I thought, man, I better make it home. I'll floor it. <laughs> 22 miles an hour over. The insurance company said, because of your mess, I'm paraphrasing, because of your messy past, we are no longer able to insure your future. It was a good decision on their part. All of this, by the way, happened before my 17th birthday. We have <laughs> mistakes in our past, and I'm trying to own them, all right? And maybe you're looking at it and going, hey, you made a lot of mistakes, a lot of messy situations when you're driving at 16 years old. And maybe somebody's a worse driver than I am here. Any? Okay, cool. Like that's, all right, we got a couple of honest, uh, honest folks. Love that. Um, but but like we, all, we have these mistakes that we've made. We have these errors in the past, these times when we look back in life and we want it so badly just to wipe away, just to disappear completely. Some of you look back at a financial decision that you made 
And you're going, I want so badly for that just to be gone, eradicated, wiped from history. I never should have loaned the family member money. I never should have gone into business with a friend. Everything changed after that, and not in a good way. Like, like nothing was the same anymore. There was always this, this cloud or this anxiety around. We just stopped spending time with each other. We just drifted apart entirely. I lost a relative. I lost a friend out of that deal. I never should have done it. Huge mistake, a messy past. Some of you are looking in the past and going, there's messy relationships or just a string of them. I never should have been with him. I never should have been with her. It was a total mistake. We were awful for each other. We were awful with each other. We made all kinds of mistakes. The Bible told us one thing and we just deviated from it thinking that we could do our own thing and it just hurt us every single time. The divorce, the second divorce, the breakups, like whatever it is, looking back in your past and going mistake after mistake and I want so badly to wipe it away and to wish that it never happened. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to see something better than wiping it away. We're going to see something even better than making it as if it never happened. We're going to see God reclaim it. We're going to, God, we're going to see God redeem it. We're going to see God, through the messy life of Jacob, do something with his messy past. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn it on. Or you can grab the, uh, the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like these better, take it. We give them away all the time and we love that. But the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Crucial to the story that we know that Jacob is now just about ready to meet his older twin brother Esau. The, the same brother that he ripped off not too long ago. He's just, Esau has now caught up with him. And he's got 400 guys at his disposal. And 20 years ago, the last time they were together, Esau was so fuming mad that he wanted to kill his younger twin brother, Jacob. And Jacob had to run away, had to flee. And now they're together again. And it's like this tension in the story is, is, is palpable. And so Jacob, because he's, he's kind of a shifty guy, He's kind of a trickster. What he does is he divides up all of his family uh, possessions and his families is a large one and, and everything that he has. And he like spreads it out, right? Diversification 101. Esau's coming. He's got 400 guys. You all go over here, over here, over here into these different groups. And he thinks he can't get us all. He sends everybody across the river and then he hangs back. And so we're going to hear what happens that night. Verse 22 of Genesis chapter 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. This is a messy story, like I said. It's a, <laughs> his two female servants and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the, the, the Jabbok River. It's important that we see that night because that was the night that Jacob's past caught up with him. That was the night that it was called in, so to speak. Uh, that was the night for Jacob that all of his deceit and all of his lies and all of his tricks were called to the table. Now keep in mind, he has ripped a lot of people off. He has ripped off his dad on his deathbed by lying about who he was. He ripped off his brother by stealing his birthright twice, ripping his brother off. He's ripped off, he ripped off his uncle, Laban. We didn't even get that story. We, we skipped over it. There's so much mess in his story. We need like another series to cover the mess of Jacob. 
What he did with his uncle, he got all these sheep that he was supposed to be in, in charge of, and his uncle asked him this question, hey, uh, how am I going to, like, what's your wage going to be? And so Jacob goes, oh, I don't know, like, like uh, why don't you give me a few of these spotted sheep and you can keep the rest of the, the perfect white blemish-free sheep for yourself. And he's like, oh, okay, you know. And then after a few years goes by, all the, the little baby sheep, we call those lambs around here and everywhere ever, um, all the spotted sheep that come out that are born, those are going to belong to me. And all the perfect white ones, those are going to belong to you. Sound fair? Yeah, sounds fair. Well, Jacob, that turkey, he puts, the, he puts the watering feed trough thing right in the middle of where his speckled sheep are hanging out. So they all kind of kind of mix together sooner or later. Lo and behold, they're all speckled sheep. And Jacob is like, hey, that's crazy, right? Shocking how that turned out. I guess I got them all. This is Jacob. He rips off everybody. Now, his chickens are coming home to roost. Okay, verse 23, continue on in the story. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. I don't know. I think he's, I think he's hanging out here because he's plotting and he's planning and he's scheming his next move. How's he going to pull one over? Esau has the numbers. He's got the army. He's got the men. I've, just, I've got these, these animals. I've got this family. I got to keep them safe. I got to keep me safe. You know, he's looking out for himself. And he's just kind of alone with his thoughts at night, sitting there when this happens. Next line. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, He's sitting on a log trying to come up with his plans. And then he's like, he's jumped, right? Somebody jumps on top of him and they start struggling and, and they struggle on. Like minute after minute, hour turns into hours and it goes on and on. He's thinking in his mind, who's attacking me? Crucial to the story, it's dark. He has no idea who it is. And so he's running through like the, the mental list of everybody he has offended, is it somebody from Esau's camp that snuck over? Is it, is it somebody that worked for my late father and knew that I, I lied to him and, and really hurt him on his deathbed? Is it somebody that my uncle may have sent? Is it somebody from one of the stories that aren't included in the Bible because the point of Jacob being a trickster deceiver and a liar and a swindler was so prevalent that we didn't need to tell another story with some of the things he did wrong? I don't know. Like, pause right there. If you're in a position where, like, the police come to you and they ask a question, do you have any enemies? And you're going, oh, and you start running through the list. Who could it be? That's maybe a good moment for some self-reflection, which, which Jacob is doing all night, locked into this mortal combat with this mysterious figure that jumped him. Now, as as the minutes turn to hours, turn to five, six hours, and they're struggling on, right? Burst of movement one way. They kind of rest, catch their breath. Burst of movement, try to get the upper hand. And sometime just before daybreak, it, it strikes Jacob as like, maybe this isn't the typical kind of person attacking me right now. Because it seems like however much energy I exert, it seems like this figure matches that equally. To, to the point of all night long matching me just exactly, strength for strength, blow for blow, until we get to the morning. Maybe what's happening here isn't something ordinary, it's something extraordinary. And then we find out in verse 25, confirmed. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he, he, he touched, just touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip 
was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, wrenched also could be translated dislocated, a howl of pain as his leg is no longer useless. And it's just this, this flappy piece of meat on the lower half of his body. And, and then it hits him. It's confirmed. This is an extraordinary being. He touches the hip. It goes out of socket. I've got like an angelic being. I've got somebody, something extraordinary here is happening. And he holds on for dear life. Verse 26, the man said, the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob has two options. Who's, who is it that he's wrestling with? Uh, option number one is this comment that that figure gives, let me go for it's daybreak. Like, like pretty soon the sun is coming up and you're going to be able to see this mysterious figure that you've been wrestling and struggling with all night long. And, and he starts to get it because there's this Old Testament prohibition against seeing God. And, and so that, along with the miraculous, miraculous like hip touch, makes him, makes him think that, makes him think that I think who I've got here is nothing less than God himself. And, and so immediately, like, he starts, he starts developing a plan around that. Now, it's either that fact that he's wrestling with God himself because God can't be seen in daylight, or it's a vampire. <laughs> but twilight hasn't been written yet, so he goes with the first thing and comes up with an option, or comes up with a plan, because he's clever. Like, you know, Jacob is a lot of things. Dull is not one of them. He goes, if it is God, what I'll do is I'll hold on for dear life and to beg for a blessing from him. Now, what I think we have to see in this, because there's a lot of ways to read this, and I want us to get it right. I think sometimes we see this, maybe from the pictures or the illustrations, if you've seen like a kid's Bible or a painting, a beautiful something or other from the Renaissance, and, and you see Jacob as the, this just jacked up dude, right, who's, who's just super strong, and we think like, man, he's in the prime of his life. He's probably in his like 20s or maybe he's 34 and it's just like super great for him right now. Whatever, okay. Uh, he's, he's 97 years old when this story takes place. Like he's an old man. Not to mention his, his hip was just ripped out of the socket. I don't want us to see this story like it's another one of Jacob's tricks to get the upper hand. This isn't that story. This is a story of a man who's entering the twilight years of his life and he's got no trick, he's got no scheme, he's got no con left. And so he just holds on for dear life holding on to God, wrestling with him. This is not an act of piety. This is not some sort of worshipful thing that we're going to emulate today. This is an act of desperation. He's got nothing left but to hold on. And I love that part. I love that part. Because when we're at the end of ourselves, 
Sometimes it's reassuring to hear a story like this and find out that God meets us in that place. That we are at the end of our strength, but we have only begun to experience the beginning of God's strength. That God meets us in that valley. You see, most of the time we think that God is going to meet us in the mountaintop experiences when everything is fine and everything is great. But the stories that I hear, your stories, quite honestly, are stories of God meeting us in the valley, meeting us in the fight, meeting us in the struggle. That, that God doesn't just, God doesn't pick the toughest soldiers for the hardest battles. No, he forms and he shapes the toughest soldiers out of the hardest battles. I just think it's so important to, to remind you that God shows up here because I think someone here, some people here need to hear about, about a God who grows us. And, and it's possible that maybe, maybe this season of your greatest spiritual growth will happen not out of your strength, but out of your weakness. Not out of your victory, but out of your struggle. And God is growing you here. That, that warriors aren't just picked from a couch, but they're formed and they're shaped in the gym. And that's what God is doing with you. He's growing you and he is stretching you. And you might feel like you're overwhelmed. You might feel like you have nothing left to give. You might be, you might be overwhelmed with this decision, overwhelmed with this relationship problem, overwhelmed with temptation. And God is saying, no, 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 I'm stretching you. I'm growing you. I haven't left you. I am with you. Struggle on. You will not lie down. You will not give up. You will not give in. Struggle on. I'm with you in the struggle. I'm growing you in the struggle. Struggle on, church. I will not let you go until you bless me. And in verse 27, the man asked him a question. What's your name? which is somewhat surprising to me because I would expect the man, God, to either bless him or not, but not to ask a question. But yet he asked, what is your name? In a sense, this is sort of like asking not so much what do people call you, but who are you? There's this long history of a Hebrew tradition that, that Jacob is coming out of, that someone's name is something so much more than just what people call you. It's sort of what you are called into. Uh, what, what's your name is another way of saying, what have you done, what will you done? Uh, what have you been, what will you be? And for Jacob's whole life, he's been Jacob, a word that literally means a deceiver, a trickster a schemer, a con man. I'm Jacob. And God gives him this opportunity. I, I think it's almost like an opportunity to go into confession and to say, tell me, are you going to own it? Are you going to tell me who you really are? Or are you going to pretend to dress up like Esau again? Are you going to lie again? Are you going to cheat your way again? Are you going to tell me who you really are? And I think for Jacob's whole life, Whenever he was asked that question, what's your name? I think he had this kind of wry smile as he said, my name's Jacob. I don't think he was smiling anymore. I don't think he had anything left to smile about. 
So he thinks for a moment, and I think, with tears, he answered, Jacob. I'm a trickster. I'm a liar. It's who I am. Verse 28, the man said, no, no, no. Your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. This is so cool. This is so cool. That word Israel, we've probably heard it before. Um, it's a fair amount in the Bible. Uh, it's two words that God gives them as a name. It's the word Isra and it's the word El in Hebrew. And, and God kind of mashes these two words up and say Israel. Now the words Isra means uh, fights or struggles. And then El means God. Literally the word together is something like God fights, God fights, or God struggles. But, but the context here is something a little different. Uh, the context here is something like, like, I'll call you Israel because you have struggled with God. You have struggled with men. You get like both of the meanings behind it. Uh, throughout the Bible, it's used almost, almost uh, as if it could go either way. Sometimes, sometimes God is commanding one of his people, one of his leaders like Gideon and saying, no, no, God goes before you. God will fight. God will overcome. God will claim his victory. God will struggle on your behalf. And other times we see these people like Jacob here struggling with God, fighting with God, wrapped up with God. And, and I, think, I think the storyteller here, they, they want to tell us, yes, it's both. It's, it's, it's at times that, that we struggle with God and we wrestle with him. We, we want to know what, what his will is, what his plan is for our life. But there's these other times in our life when God steps in and he says, no, 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 I will fight because you've got nothing left. You're at the end of your strength. You're at the beginning of mine. You struggle with me and I will claim the victory. I will call you Israel. I will make you into something new. But we're not forgetting the past. The story continues in this, in this part that often is forgotten about. And we'll just finish out the passage here. Verse 29 where Jacob said, please tell me your name. If you're going to mess up my hip and wrestle with me all night, and stain my clothes. When I tell the story, I want a name. No, that's not how it works. But the man replied, God replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel. And we think this is just like end note kind of information, but I think it makes the story saying, it's because I saw God face to face and my life was spared. That's what Peniel means in the language that he was writing in. And then in verse 31, now the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. The part in the story that we think these are just random details that the author here is including to kind of end it in this beautiful picture of the sun coming up and he's like limping along move on to the next story. He's going to meet Esau. But no, no, no. To the listeners in that day, and, and maybe to an astute reader today, like you, you might remember something. It's been 20 years since he saw Esau, who is now on the other side of that river. It's been 20 years that, that, that he fled from home, from Esau, and crossed that river. You see, he fled at night to get out of there. 
which is really kind of significant when we start putting it together because he fled away from his, his homeland. Now, the homeland then was something so much more than, than a piece of property or maybe an inheritance, a, a lot to do some farming on and to take some money on. The land, the dirt that he was on was so significant because God promised it, God pledged it, God committed it to his grandfather, Abraham. And then after pledging that to his grandfather, Abraham, he re-upped that commitment, that covenant, to his father, Isaac. And then he said, Jacob, you're going to be the son of promise. You're going to be the one that I'm going to continue it through. That property, that patch of dirt that he ran away from was the very promise and pledge, the tangible expression of God's love and commitment. And he ran away under the cover of darkness 20 years ago. And the way that he took was through a little town that would later be named Peniel by the Jabbok River. And two decades later, not under the cover of darkness, but as the sun is rising again, Jacob, Israel, is coming home. He's coming back to the God that he fled two decades ago. He's coming back to the family that he hurt again and again and again. Except he's not Jacob anymore. He's Israel. And so he's walking through and he's got this limp to him. And I want you to be able to see the picture because as he's walking through this arid terrain, he's tired. He's been up all night struggling and fighting. He's bleeding. He's bruised. His clothes are torn. His clothes are stained with dirt and sweat. And he's just kind of dragging this leg behind him. He's got nothing left to give as he comes home. And isn't that the perfect picture of where we all stand before God? Isn't that the most beautiful thing to see ourselves, every single one of us, has nothing left to offer, has dragging a, a leg, a piece of meat behind us because we've got nothing left in the tank and we're just trying to, to make it home and God meets us in that place and says, no, 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 it's not your strength, it's mine. I want you to take that leg, that limp that you've got, and, I'm, and you bring it with you because we're going to do something. Every time you or your people see that leg and see that limp and watch your funny gait as you walk through a town in a village, they're going to be reminded of the day that God met you in the struggle. And God fights not just with you to grow you and to deepen you, but God fights for you to give you victory and to give you triumph when you've got nothing left in the tank. And God says, that picture of weakness, no, 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 you don't even get it. You won't get it until 2 Corinthians is written far later when Paul writes, quoting God, saying, my power, God, is made perfect in weakness. That sad picture of Jacob coming home with a limp leg is a picture of God demonstrating his perfect and complete power made perfect in weakness because God, our God, is a God who says, you want to know what power looks like? You want to know what victory looks like? Power and victory look like a baby born God and put in a feed trough in a barn somewhere. 
You want to know what power looks like, what my power looks like. My power looks like the Son of God hanging naked and bleeding from a cross, dying to reclaim the world and everyone who would put their hope in him back to him. That's what my power looks like. It looks a lot like the weakness of this world and my power is made perfect in that weakness. And we take that and we take our weak moments and we take our messy past and we take all the junk in our life and what do we do? We hide it and say, I don't want anybody to know about this. I don't want anybody to find out about this. And God says, listen, I'm not going to pretend to bless somebody that you're pretending to be. God says, I'm not going to play that game. No, no, we can clean this up. We can do something with it, Jacob. Encounter church. Like I did for Jacob, we can do something with it. We're not going to make it disappear. We're not going to make it as if it never happened. We're going to do something better. We're going to redeem it. We're going to make it. So every time somebody looks at that limp or your mess, they're going to praise the God of that mess. This is the kind of church that I pray God is growing us to become. It's so wild to think that you guys go to church, go to a church, or maybe you're just here for the first time and you come in to our upper lobby where we literally write down what our messes are and then we post it on the wall in the lobby, not to be judged, but to be prayed for. It's a bizarre thing. It doesn't make sense to the world and I love it. I wanna wrap up with this story that somebody shared with me. Um, in a note earlier uh, this week, just commenting on what a strange, beautiful, doing life together kind of church this is. She writes, we were literally in tears because of pain and having this kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, how long, Lord, and why me kind of moment. Attending church on Sunday in in the midst of my bad attitude made me confront some of my own feelings. But, but I'm so thankful for a church like this where we can share, quoting here, where we can share our mess and be welcomed nonetheless. I love it so much. So I got to say it again. Where we can share our mess and be welcomed nonetheless. I felt relieved to write my mess on a card and leave it at Encounter, knowing our family will not be judged, but be prayed for. God will reclaim your past. God will redeem your past. And then like Jacob, Israel, he will write you a new future. I invite you to stand up with me. Jacob, by the way, hasn't yet met Esau, who's waiting for him on the other side of the river. Last time he saw him, he wanted him dead. Find out what happens by going home and reading Genesis 33. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, you're the God of our mess. You're the God of our past, and you're the God who writes our future. God, I, I pray that that you give us the courage today, this week, this season to turn the mess over to you, to turn the past 
over to you. And God, may you not just clean it up, but may you redeem it. May you build into it a story that's worth sharing, a story where the world looks at the messes that we've created and somehow by your miraculous grace, they praise you. Jesus, the God of our mess, give us strength this week. Amen.